You're up. <laughs> Wait, what do you say? Welcome to Inside <laughs> the Hive. Welcome to Inside the Hive with Tom Conrad. No, you're supposed to say, I am your host. Fuck me dead. <laughs> <laughs> we're just keep, we're, we're, we're not stopping. All I right. know, clearly. So, so let's explain what's going on here this week. So Tom Conrad, that's you. That's me. Is gonna, it's hosting the show. Your host. And I am going to be the guest. And what are we talking about? Wait, who are you? I'm Nick Bilton. You're Nick Bilton. And we are talking about your book, American Kingpin. Yeah, that's you got the title right. Which is good. <laughs> um, it is one of the few books I've read in the last couple of years. So it was, you know, that was helpful when you asked if I'd be willing to do this. Uh, which is out, it's out in paperback. It is out in paperback this week. Uh, and... Uh, and we're just going to talk about that and technology and then the ro- its role in society. And um, uh, so I'm going to give you a li- I'm going to give everyone a little primer on you, Tom Conrad. So Tom started his career at, did you start at pets.com? No, Apple. Apple. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, same thing. Considerably better. Uh, started his career at Apple and then went on in the uh, first .com bus to work for pets.com. Um, then went to you co-founded Pandora, is that correct? Yeah, sort co-founded of. Co-founded Pandora, ran Pandora for... Ten years. Ten years, well, wow. product and engineering. Uh, uh, left, went to Snapchat. Correct. Um, and have recently left Snapchat. You were the chief product officer there. And now you're starting a uh, porn company, is that correct? Or... Um, I prefer <laughs> to think of it as adult erotic entertainment. <laughs> Hi, mom. Hi, mom. Uh, and so, uh, so Tom is is incredibly thoughtful when it comes to technology, having worked in the space for a long time, um, and is currently going through the same thing that a lot of us are around whether technology is good for society or bad for society, um, and so on. And so, my book, American Kingpin, is um, the story of this guy called Ross Ulbricht, who started the Silk Road, where you could buy drugs and guns and poisons and and lots of things like that um uh and uh so tom read the book and so we figured we'd have a conversation about it, which will lead back of course to this technology thing so over to you tom okay before we jump into talking about american kingpin uh in particular uh, tell me a little bit about the process of writing a book like this and what i like about you know all of the things that um you've written is that they seem like first and foremost to be really well researched and reported, but they also have this kind of very strong narrative, almost cinematic drive to them. And I've always sort of wondered about how you sort of strike the balance between being accurate to the truth of the story, um, but filling in the white space with these more kind of, uh, uh, evocative, you know, details. I, th- I think I remember you telling me once, in fact, that when you were writing Hatching Twitter, there's a there's a moment where uh, your sources disagreed about the weather. Yeah. And you had to do, like, all of this research into, like, the, the particular day and the microclimates of San Francisco to try to sort out whether it was raining or not. Like, tell me about that. So the, the process that I... So my books are narrative nonfiction, um, and they kind of hopefully read like novels or movie scripts. And there's two things that I did when I first started writing this way. Uh, I, I, read a t- I don't read nonfiction books. I read novels. Um, and, uh, and so I'm always kind of looking at the way people write them. Um, but I decided to study two different things before I started writing uh, these nonfiction books. And one was how to write murder mysteries. 
Uh, and there's lots of books on how to write murder mysteries. Um, and the other thing was how to write movie scripts. And I love the idea of you, like, at the public library, checking out <clears throat> how to write murder mysteries. Well, there's, there's, there's one book in particular, I forget what it's called, but um, it's what, what it is is it tells the story of when you write a murder mystery, there are all these, there's a, you know, there's a systematic way of doing it, but there are things you do with characters to make them likable or non-likable and so on. And so one of the things that I learned, for example, is that you always, every murderer has a mother who loves them. And the reason for that is because you, you can't relate to someone who no one likes. They do things in murder mysteries where they talk about, um, they describe the smell of scenes, uh, which you don't see normally you never see in a nonfiction book. You never see in a newspaper article or magazine feature. There's lots of things that they do. Um, and so I started to kind of, when I first wrote Hatching Twitter, I thought of it as a murder mystery um, uh, in the same with American Kingpin. And and so I kind of, I get really obsessed with the details. Um, and so things I'll do for just literally one paragraph is I will, if, if a scene took place, and I say scenes because I think of them in my mind as like movie scenes, if a scene took place in a uh, in a cafe, I will go to the cafe. I will sit in the chair that the person sat in. I will order the same food as them, so I can describe what the view looks like. Then I look at the weather almanac online to see what the the weather was. I go to um, you can use apps to see time of day and which direction the sun was, so you can see if it was shady or not. Just these all these little details. And the thing that's been so fascinating with the last two books I've written are um, the fact that you can go into, uh, you can go on social media and you can pinpoint all these different things and there's timestamps and there's GPS locations and there's satellite imagery. And, and so I think that narrative nonfiction writing from the days of, you know, In Cold Blood with Truman Capote to today have, have changed dramatically because of all the things that are at your fingertip. And so what I try to do is I try to imagine myself as the person that I'm writing about. Um, and, you know, do I walk this way or that way? And I ask them these questions. When I'm interviewing people, I'm like, well, wait a second. Were you wearing socks or were you not wearing socks? Were you, did you walk up the street or down the street? Did you make a left or right? And, um, and I make all, uh, millions and millions of, of notes and, and then tie it all together. But the thing that's important is, is you know, at the end of the book, you have to go through it with a lawyer. And, um, and so you, I have all these notes and I can literally tie every single sentence to a thing, a photo, a picture, a place, an interview, or, or whatever it is. So, okay. Take me back to when you started to write this book. I mean, how did you end up writing a book about a website that sells drugs, guns, poisons? I mean... I guess, as I say it out loud, it's 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 a good place to start. Yeah. But, but how did you find this story? So I lived in San Francisco, which is where we met. We met, well, how long ago was it? Like, Maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, I lived in San Francisco, and I was in Glen Park, which back then was not completely gentrified yet. It was like the, what would you say? It's like the blue-collar worker kind of place. And, um, and I used to walk Pixel, my dog, uh, um, along this route from my house uh, on Richland Avenue down past the little main street to this little, like, trail. Um, and I remember Glen Park has a main street that's like any tiny little town in America. It's got a coffee shop and a little grocery store and a little bar and a pizza place and a tiny little library that's, you know, smaller than this room. And I remember I used to walk past the library being in San Francisco with tech and thinking, like, who the hell goes to that library? Um, and then, and I'd written some stuff for the New York Times about, um, 
about the dark web and Bitcoin and and you know things you could buy and sell on the internet. And um, and then uh, one day there's an arrest in my neighborhood with lots of FBI and so on. And it's this guy Ross Ulbricht who it turns out was working out of that tiny little library building and running this website called the Silk Road, uh, which, you know, the cops at the time said was a $1.2 billion enterprise and that there had been, he had put hits out to have people killed and, um, and was selling thousands of different types of drugs. And, uh, um, and they caught him right there in that library, right next to the grocery store that I went to every day, uh, with, uh, with his hands on the keyboard. And so I thought, holy shit, this is a totally different this is something that I've never thought was humanly possible. I remember that moment too, just living in San Francisco and being like, wait, the, the Dread Pirate Roberts is like, was working out of the local library? Uh, yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's... So, so spe- speaking of crazy, I, I remember as you were uh, working on the book, we would get together and you would give me little bits and pieces. Um, but as it unfolded, the story became like... There was a new surprise that felt like every month as you went deeper and deeper into it. And you would even say to me, you would tell me a little bit and you'd be like, but I can't tell you any of the rest because like it's too amazing and you have to actually read the book. Like, what was it like to have found this little thread of the, you know, the cops outside your local library and start to pull on it and, and find not just the stuff that had been reported elsewhere, but just an incredible trove of twists and turns and surprises. You're listening to Inside the Hive. With Nick Bilton. So if you're struggling to get some sleep at night, you've got a couple of options. You could waste time on the internet, probably not the best idea. You could go to the dark web and buy some drugs, probably not the best idea. What is a good idea is for you to go to Mattress Firm. Mattress Firm is America's neighborhood mattress store, and they can help you stretch your budget a little further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts. People, they know mattresses better than anyone knows mattresses, I can assure you. Uh, They can straight up help you build your bed, your headboard, adjustable bases, sheets. They even have bedroom decor if you need help there too. They've got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com, you can save 10% on a mattress by entering the code PODCAST10. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0 through June 5th to save 10%. Mattress Firm is incredible because they offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure that you get perfection of 120 nights perfect sleep or it's a guarantee that they'll take it back. Go to mattressfirm.com. Once again, enter the code PODCAST10 through June 10th. It is an amazing experience. Don't go to the dark web. Go to mattressfirm.com. Well, one thing that's really interesting is, is you say it's like a thread you're pulling on. I, I, I actually imagine it the other way around. So I've, I imagine the detectives, the FBI agents, the DEA agents, and so on. For them, it's a thread they're pulling apart. And for me, it's a thread I'm putting back together. Like I'm re, re-sewing the, the sweater back together. Um, and what was so fascinating is, and one of the things that I, in these instances, and I did this with the Twitter book and I did this with American Kingpin, is people think they know the story. And so you have to tell them a different version of it that they don't know. Um, and I was really worried when I first started writing this book. I thought, oh my God, it's been reported everywhere. What happened? The trial's been covered and this, that, and the other. And, um, and as I started to do really like on the ground reporting and meeting with agents and and getting and and delving through Ross Ulbricht's uh, chat logs on his computer and um, and uh, thousands of photos on social media and comments and 
Um, my researcher and I, this woman Nicole, we, we put together a database, essentially, an Excel kind of spreadsheet database, where we took the timestamps of everything and we could cross-reference it. And when you start to put these things together, there are these moments when you're like, holy shit. Uh, um, you know, when, for example, Russ is living in uh, Austin, Texas, and a friend of his... Uh, he's only two people know about the website that he's built. Um, Actually, wait, let's go yeah, back. Yep. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Ross. Paint, okay. a, paint a picture of Ross. Paint who, a picture who, of Ross. Who, so, who, who is this guy? So, Ross Albrecht is the nicest kid you went to high school with. He is the kind of guy who stops on the sidewalk and helps an old lady across the street. He's the guy who literally, there's a moment in in the story where he's walking down the street in Austin, Texas with his friend. And he walks past a flower shop, and he stops, and he goes up to the flower shop, uh, the lady at the flower stall, and he buys a single flower, and then he hands it to the lady and says something nice to her and comes back, and the friend says, well, what did you just do? And he says, I, I, I don't think anyone ever buys flowers for the person who owns the flower shop, so I thought it would be a nice thing to do. Like, this is the kind of person he is. Um, as a kid, he rescues animals and takes them to shelters, and he... Um, you know, scores incredibly high in his SATs, incredibly smart, uh, and is going to be a physicist, um, you know, the kind of person that does all the Higgs boson stuff and, um, and quantum mechanics and so on. And he, he, growing up in Austin, Texas, is a, it's a, it's not a t- typical Texas place. There are parts in certain areas that are incredibly Republican. There are parts in other areas that are incredibly uh, Democrat. And then there are, of course, the libertarians, um, which is a, pretty big group of people there. And his parents were very libertarian. They had this belief that the government was too big. They shouldn't be able to tell you what you can and can't do. And those were the conversations that happened at the dinner table with Ross and his mom and dad and sister as he was growing up. And there's a moment in time he's, he's, he gets out of school, he flunks out of his PhD program um, uh, to, to be a physicist. And he comes back to Austin and he's trying all these things and everything's failing. And he has this idea wouldn't it be amazing if you could build a website where you could buy and sell drugs, mild drugs, you know, he wasn't thinking everything, um, uh, and that the cops wouldn't be able to arrest you for this, this stupid thing because the cops should not be able, to, the government should not be able to tell you what you can and cannot put in your body. Um, and um, uh, and so he starts working on it, and, and it's the perfect time. Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, has just, just come into fruition. And, and Tor, the web browser that makes you completely anonymous, ironically built by the U.S. Navy, um, is around. And he builds this thing, this website, and halfway through the process, he realizes he needs some drugs. So um, he goes out to uh, Bastrop State Park in Austin, and he rents a little place, and he starts growing magic mushrooms, um, and he, I mean, it's literally, if you imagine Breaking Bad, it's Breaking Bad, but rather than meth, it's magic mushrooms, and the guy's name is Ross, um, and and then he starts the website, and at first, you know, he's, he, he, you know, he's, he sells one bag of mushrooms, and it's, the, it's the, the greatest day of his life. I mean, it's literally, he couldn't be more excited, uh, and, um, and then it just starts to explode, uh, and... Um, Every week, it's going from just making a couple of hundred bucks to a couple of thousand bucks to hundreds of thousands and, uh, and so on. And there's a, a main moment where the story changes 
forever. Um, and that is, he starts the website in January um, and, uh, of 2011. And, and by June, uh, June 1st at 4.20 p.m., ironically, uh, Gawker, the now defunct blog, writes a post about the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Game change from there on. There's that old, like, kind of dot-com era television ad where the the founders are sitting around and, like, throw the switch to launch their website, and the, the sales ticker goes from, like, one to two to four, and they're all, like, kind of clapping, and it goes from 10 to 100 to 10,000 to 100,000, <laughs> and the blood drains out of their face. I, there's definitely that moment when that cocker piece hits where you can feel the blood draining out of Ross's face and him wondering, hmm. Well, there's the there's moment, I mean, and, and I'm sure this is something you can speak to, is there's this moment where you're like, I want everyone to know about this website, and then everyone finds out and the website stops working. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and for Ross, he had, he had, I mean, to put into perspective how smart he was, he had never, he never took a coding class. You know, he literally t- was self-taught. He literally built a mini Amazon.com on the dark web by himself. Um, and as you know, as a, a, a former CTO, uh, that's not easy. And he made some mistakes. And one of the mistakes he made was there was this file that connected the um, the Bitcoin transaction to the website and to the Bitcoin wallet that he had. And he had done something wrong. And he hadn't noticed it uh when there was just a few transactions, but when the Gawker article hits and there's thousands of people signing up a minute, uh, buying things, it, what's, what it's doing is it's essentially like a cash register that's opening and money's falling out every time you open the cash register. And so he had all this, all this Bitcoin reserve and it just vanished. And he was, he didn't sleep for days. Uh, he, um, you know, he, his girlfriend would bring him peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that would just sit there piled up. Like he wouldn't eat, uh, and I, I can't imagine. And then at the same time, what happens is Chuck Schumer in New York um, holds a press conference after this article because everyone starts covering this thing. And he says, we're going after these guys, you know. Uh, and uh, and is it, does he have a co-conspirator at this point? Or is it really just, just him and the girlfriend knows that he's growing these mushrooms and has a little website? It's, well, it's there's two people that know. So it's him and the girlfriend knows, but the girlfriend doesn't think much of it. She thinks, ah, eh, it's just a little website. She's not really paying attention. Um, and uh, and then there's this kid that he went to school with who is this, this really funny character who um, has kind of got OCD and his everything in his apartment is like white and clean and, you know, you got to take your shoes off and not touch things. And, and he recruits him to help. And at first, like, I mean, you've got to understand, like, there, there's a few dozen people using this thing. It's not a big deal. It's an experiment. But then everyone starts using it, and um, and the government's after them. The DA opens a case, and other groups, HSI, so on and so forth. And everyone else is like, "You got This is you got to shut this thing down." And for Ross, it was like a moment of, "No, this is it. This is like I'm ready. This I've waited my whole life to do this." So, so say more about that because it's it's interesting. Like it's it's easy to look at him as a kind of Walter White who falls down this rabbit hole. Um, uh, but I think you know, in 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 Breaking Bad, in the fiction, like there's a kind of almost a, like immediate corruption of of Walter that is what makes the story kind of interesting. But but. 
it feels like for a long time, Ross sees only the positive in what he's doing. I think until the end, he saw the positive. Um, uh, and I don't think it was until the sentencing that he saw the negative, and I still am not 100% sure he does um, completely. I know his mother definitely doesn't. Um, uh, the the thing that I would say is, I think in the beginning, when, it's interesting, when you're reading the book and when I'm writing it, I remember thinking how it truly was an altruistic goal in the beginning. And I think this is true with all technology. And I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, but it was this altruistic goal of, and I agree with it. I agree with the fact that we sh- you should not be you should not be going to jail for smoking weed. You should not be going to jail for doing magic mushrooms. These mild drugs that are in many ways safer than alcohol. You know how many people have died from magic mushrooms in the last thirty years? Two, and it's not even clear if they died from magic mushrooms or it was some other medical ailment. Like it's you don't see articles in the news of like someone getting messed up on smoking too much weed and like crashing into a bank and killing 400 people. It's like, you know what I'm saying? It's, sure. it's, yeah. um, and, um, and so the fact that the government can arrest you and throw you in jail, and that's now changing, of course, with the Mala drugs, but at the time it wasn't the case. And, and I think that he had a, a true altruistic goal of saying, like, let me give people the, the version of, of something that is going to make sure, A, they don't get robbed and beaten up when they're buying drugs in, on the streets, they don't end up in jail, um, and that and that you can and this was like this was his big aha moment that you can ensure that the drugs are safe because just like eBay where everyone gets a rating on the Silk Road, the drug dealers had a rating and and so on. But what happens is, you know, with this libertarian philosophy of of the government should not be able to tell you what you can and cannot do. That has to you can't it can't not apply to other things. You can't say well you can buy weed but you can't buy heroin. Because it doesn't line up. It's like the Peter Thiel mentality of um, of this. And so for Ross, it was very very quickly was was faced with the question of should people be able to buy and sell heroin? And it wasn't even a question for him. And in his mind, you should be able to do whatever you want with your body, and the government should not be able to stop you from doing it. And I think that this is where there's a naivety that comes across, and it comes across in Silicon Valley too, where um, uh, the, if you're doing heroin, you're not just messing up your own life. You're fucking up everyone's. You know, it's a poison that your family, your kids. I mean, if you look at videos on social media of, of like parents overdosing in the in the supermarket and their kids are like, "Mommy, wake up!" I mean, it's brutal to watch. And um, thirty three thousand people die every year from heroin and fentanyl overdoses. Families are torn apart. You, I mean, you know, what, yeah. it's. And I think that that was a there was that was a total failure of understanding the impact. It was a, it was a viewpoint of like, I'm making the world a better place. And then the secondary thing that was happening was there was no age restriction. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think that, uh, um, that was, you know, there are now you see stories every week that like a 12 year old that bought something online overdosed cause they didn't know what it was and died. And, um, and that was, I think, the moment, you know, in the court case, there was a kid, Preston Bridges, who did die um, from buying drugs on there. And uh, I think that was a moment where Ross actually was like, huh, that was probably not the best idea. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of an extreme case that's uh, like it's an interesting lens to view a lot of what's happened in um, 
kind of consumer and internet technology over the course of the last, you know, well, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I know certainly for, for certainly in the very beginning and for a, a, for a long time, I saw nothing but the kind of very optimistic upside to how these technology products would change the world and make people's lives better. And um, uh, I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on, I think a lot of people um, in this industry have been reflecting on for the last few years is just all of the unintended consequences of the things that, that, that we've made, you know, starting from some sort of simple things, which is like, you know, I miss record stores and bookstores and, and, and some of these kinds of places of culture where people came together to share a moment that have been, you know, largely replaced by online resources, um, you know, on through to, you know, the death of our democracy. Thank you, Twitter. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and, and I think through it all, it's kind of in the, when you're in the middle of it, it's, it is easy to um, to believe the story that you tell yourself about the good that you're doing in the world, and to um, well, let me ask you a question: bury your head in the sand a little bit about the. Do you not see the bad as someone who builds the thing? Are you do you, are you thinking like when you're building Pandora ten years ago? Are you not looking at? Um, oh, this is going to suck for record stores, or you're like, this is going to be cool. I can listen to whatever music I want. Yeah, you know, I. Um, uh, I ran into a recording artist yesterday, um, and we got to talking about Pandora and I kind of, uh, tensed up expecting her to say, kind of shaking her head, oh man, Pandora, like you're, you're, you're one of the, you're one of the reasons that I can't sell records anymore. And, um, and instead she had kind of the opposite story, the, 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 the story of Pandora really being a source of new fans for her and really being a catalyst for driving the other parts of her career. Um, but in the beginning, the, you know, the, the experience that she had with Pandora was the only one that I could imagine. It was like a big part of the motivation for creating the service in the first place. And over time, you know, it, 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 uh, you do get exposed to the, the other side of that story. And when you're in the middle of it, I mean, it is hard to to have enough perspective to to say anything other than, oh no, 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 you don't get it. Like we're doing this for you, you know. <laughs> um, we're here to help. Yeah. And and I think in my case, only when I've kind of stepped away and had a little bit of uh, an opportunity to gain some time and perspective, um, is does it become easier to see the things that um, that don't fit the narrative that you have in your head about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, I mean. Listen, there are all different kinds of founders and CEOs and companies, and and um, uh, I'm sure the story is you know rich and varied. But my sense is that very few um, founders like like are kind of they don't sit in their lair and like I'm going to you know. Here's here's how we're going to manipulate our audience for you know to further our own riches. I think. Um, Hi, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, uh, I think most of them get out of bed every day and like you know start from a more optimistic place. But um, <laughs> there's room for all types in the world, and I think we get a bit of a bit of all of it. But like so so, say more about Ross. So he's he's blind to. 
the uh, the implications of what he's built. Um, he's uh, uh, because he's so um, sort of pure, ideologically pure in the in the his perspective on on its place in the world. I th- I think that um, you know to to. to Put into perspective, a lot of people say, oh, did you ever interview Ross? And I didn't talk to him. I, I covered the trial, so I was there in the courtroom for a month. Um, I spoke to family members and ex-girlfriends from elementary school to, you know, be right before he was arrested, roommates. Um, uh, but the most telling thing that I got was um, not his, we went through all the social media I, I got access to one of his phones that he'd had that he left somewhere and got to see thousands of photos and videos and whatnot. Um, but the most telling thing was Ross had, um, when he was running the website, he used a program called TorChat, which is just like Instant Messenger. And uh, he had uh, accidentally, I believe, I'm not 100% sure if this was intentional or accidental. I'm pretty sure it was it was accidental, but he had not turned off a setting that saves the chat logs in a secret hidden folder somewhere on your computer. Uh, and so he had been using this thing for almost three years to run this website. So now imagine, and the only way he ever talked to his employees, that he ended up hiring all these employees all over the, all over the world secretly, was through this chat log. There was no other way they had a conversation. There was one phone call he had with one of those like, like, you know, fake the things that make your voice weird. It was one phone call. But other than that, every single conversation was either over email or through this chat log. Um, and we got access to that. It was 2.1 million words of chats. And just as in the same way, so imagine that you, like the first three years of Pandora, every conversation you have with every employee is documented from whether you're talking about like fixing the config files to like, oh, I just watched, you know, the latest episode of, you know the queen the crown this weekend it was great um and that was what was in there and so we painstakingly went through (laughs) all of it um and there's a lot of just nonsense and like but there's a lot of moments where they actually talk to each other and they tell these stories and they talk about like ross talks about going camping with his dad when he was a kid and the impact that had and and this guy who ends up working for him his who becomes his like right hand guy conciliar variety jones talks about how he hates heroin because he had been arrested a bunch in England and and he saw what heroin could do to people and he just thought it was the most evil drug and he didn't want anything to do with it. Um, Cocaine, he was fine with guns, he was fine with heroin, not so much. And you start to see their thinking play out as they're kind of coming up with justifications for some of the things they're doing, like putting hits out on people to have them killed. You start to see their thinking play out. And I think for Ross... Through and I tell that story because to answer the question, for Ross there was always this altruistic justification, if you will. Um, when there's a moment in the story where he has this guy who's working for him, uh, and this is when the these, these are you know going back to that first question, you're like there's these holy shit moments in the book. This is like one of the holy shit moments. There's many, many, many of them, um, uh, and there's some that are just ironic and funny, like. When he used to grow the magic mushrooms, he would watch Breaking Bad uh, while he was waiting for the chemicals and stuff. But uh, but there's one moment in the book that's just kind of laughably Coen Brothers-esque, like, what? And it's when there's this guy in Spanish Fork, Utah, who his online you know moniker is called Chronic Pain. And he is an employee of the Silk Road, and he manages the forums. And... Um, 
and he is facilitating a drug buy of a kilo of cocaine from this guy uh, who he believes is a, um, a, a South American $25 million a year drug dealer. Uh, it turns out this, this South American drug dealer, his name is Nob uh, online, is actually an undercover DEA agent. And, uh, and they, the undercover DEA agent is working with a, a team uh, called the Marco Polo Task Force. And there's another guy on the, on the force called Sean Bridges, who is a, um, a Secret Service agent. So they do this, this you know, imagine Spanish Fork, Utah. Uh, you, you've spent a lot of time there, right? Uh, in Utah? In Utah. Um, and uh, it's, it's like a basin surrounded by these beautiful mountains. There's Mormon churches everywhere, American flags blowing in the wind. And uh, there's this white house on the corner. It's dilapidated. Um, and uh, the cops pull up uh, undercover and they drop off. They have a, a mail, a fake mail uh, delivery guy that drops off this package uh, that looks like a brick and the door opens and out comes uh, a man uh, overweight um, where has a fanny pack on a pink cane and a limp uh, and two little chihuahuas that are following him um, and they, he comes out he looks at the package as these agents are all watching and he picks it up and he throws it in the garbage and it's a kilo of cocaine in it and the agents are like what the fuck do we do now? Like we, this is the whole thing. So eventually time goes by and he comes back out, has a change of heart. He picks up the package. He takes it inside the house. Um, and the SWAT team comes in door smashed down. He's literally popped open the package and a plume of, of cocaine is covering his face. His chihuahuas are freaked out and they see the cops. They shit themselves on the floor. He, they arrest him. They start searching his house. There's like a giant black dildo on his bed. Like, it's just all this bizarre. He's running a Bitcoin um, uh, um, mining facility in his basement, uh, and they get access to his computer. And so here's the crazy part. So uh, the D agent and the, and the Secret Service agent uh, start looking at the computer, and the Secret Service agent realizes that this, this nobody, you know, uh, employee has access to people's Bitcoin accounts. So he pulls out $350,000 of Bitcoin, and he steals it, and he puts it in an account. And So wait, just <clears throat> I want to make sure everyone is following along here, because one of the amazing things about the book is that you'll get a chapter or two about Ross and the, the, the genesis of the Silk Road itself, and then we'll switch gears and we'll meet uh, someone in law enforcement across the country. Um, and they become, uh, in these different sort of branches of, of law enforcement, you know, the other important characters in the book. And um, I'm actually really, even now, not sure if Ross is the, the villain or the protagonist or the, an anti-hero. Yeah. And I think you start off believing that when the law enforcement characters get introduced, that they'll be kind of the, um, the heroes of the book and kind of anything but ends up being the case in, in at least one key uh, uh, case. But um, so t t t tell us about those characters. Start, start with each of them. Well, so I'll just, um, there's a lot of characters in the book, but I'll focus on these two and, and then we'll do what you just said happens in the book. We'll switch to Ross so you can get Ross's perspective on this. So uh, Carl Forrest, the D agent, he's a, uh, uh, you know, goes to church on Sundays, only listens to church radio on his car, was an undercover drug agent um, in the South for many years, 
uh, and would do what they call jump outs, where you pull up on the sidewalk, grab a bunch of guys and arrest them, and then try to work your way up the ladder to catch people. And he was undercover for many years, but he, what happened was he was, he got too undercover. He got too into like the, like, I'm the drug dealer and he would party at the bar with the real drug, like the real, real, real drug guys. Um, he would go out drinking with them. He would, you know, I don't know what he would do with the women, but you know, there are, there are things that would happen. And, um, and he got so into it. He was like getting, he got arrested for like a DUI and, and they pulled him off. Um, cause he just, he couldn't, he couldn't blur the line between DA cop and undercover drug dealer. He became both. Uh, and, um, and so when he, he gets a desk job and he's kind of going to ride out his days in Baltimore as a DEA agent, just working in his desk job. And then the, along comes the Silk Road case. And he thinks to himself, like, I can't get in any trouble doing the Silk Road case. And as you're about to see, that is completely not the case. Sean Bridges is the Secret Service guy. And I don't think that Carl Force was a bad guy. I think he was, He, as you'll see, he kind of just gets caught up in something that he shouldn't have. Uh, and then doesn't know how to get out of it. Uh, 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 Sean Bridges is not a, is not a good guy from all intents from everyone that I've spoken to. Uh, he is just a he he's just there's a lot of things that he ends up doing that are that are pretty bad. And so he has connections to the NSA and he works at the Secret Service and he's working on this case. And so back to that Utah house, the Spanish Fork Utah house, when Sean Bridges takes the three hundred and fifty thousand dollars out of out of the account. Um, you, the chapter ends, and we go to, to Ross's perspective. And Ross is like, holy shit, one of my employees just stole 350 grand from me. And him, he talks to, his, to, to Variety Jones, his conciliar, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And he's like, Ross is like, should I have him beaten up? Should I have him killed? Should I just let him go? And, and Variety Jones is like, you have to set a precedent. If anyone steals from the Dread Pirate Roberts, which is Ross's online moniker, um, there has to be reprisals. And so Ross is is torn about what What's, to do. What do you think is happening here? Are they playing a part, or have they really become criminals? Who's who's they? I mean, Ross and Ross, VJ. Yeah, like Ross. I think is looking at himself in the same way that Steve Jobs looked at himself when um, there were all the suicides at Foxconn because they were making too many iPhones too quickly, and he's thinking to himself, "This is a business." These things happen. I have to. A good CEO deals with these situations. They don't stop production of the iPhone and lose billions and billions of dollars. They say, "Okay, let's figure it out as we're going." And I think this is what Ross is doing. So Ross is running this 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 company, and and he there's this Variety Jones is an amazing character. He's super smart. Um, he's very funny and witty, and if, if, like could have written a better book than me. He was so he's such a great writer, and he um, there's one point where he's lecturing Ross about how he needs to be a better CEO of the Silk Road, and he says, "Do you want to be Larry the Cable Guy or Steve Jobs? You got to make that decision. You can't be both." And um, and so Ross is kind of torn about what to do, and he goes for a long walk, ironically in the same place that I used to go for my walk with my dog Pixel, uh, thinking about this and. He comes back and he decides they're going to put a hit out on this guy, Chronic Pain, who stole um, this 350 grand. But what he does is he hires the undercover DEA agent, thinking that he's not an undercover DEA agent, that he's a real right. drug dealer, to do the hit. So there's this moment where they, ha they have to, the DEA agent and the Secret Service agent who stole the money are now being paid to kill the guy 
who they who stole the money, who the drug pirate Roberts Ross Elbert thinks stole the money from them, and they're at the Marriott Hotel in 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 Utah, and they they are they decide they print out a like a, a form that says we're going to do this fake murder. Uh, the guy signs it, um, petrified, totally terrified. Um, they used to call him, uh, uh, I believe it was the Taint. Uh, that was his nickname uh, in high school. Uh, um, and uh, and so they uh, they Chris, sorry, um, Carl Force and Sean Bridges, the D agent and Secret Service agent, uh, they fake murder this employee. But they when they do it and they they torture him in the bathtub, they literally like waterboard him in the bathtub. They actually do it. Uh, and they videotape it to send to, and they fake his death and they do it with like a can of Campbell soup. And I mean, it's just insane. And, um, and Ross pays them to do the murder. But what happens is the DEA agent is supposed to take the money he gets paid. It's $80,000 and give it back to the DEA, but he doesn't. And now he starts stealing money. Uh, and he creates all these other online identities and he's selling information about the case to Ross. He's, you know, and in the end, the, the two guys end up stealing well over a million and a half dollars in Bitcoin in, uh, in the case as they're, you know, trying to catch him, but they're really not. They're trying to help him and they're helping themselves. <laughs> as, and that's as, just one. As, as entertaining as it is to, to, for the reader, uh, I just like to imagine, like, as all of this is coming together for you as the author. I mean, you've got, it has to be high fives all around as you're realizing what you've got. There are moments that are, yeah, it's totally high fives, but it, there are moments of, um, of there, there are two things that are going on for me as the author as I'm researching and writing it. Is one is, I'm genuinely trying to understand, is Ross a good guy or a bad guy? Um, does he become a bad guy? Uh, and... And I'm not going to answer that question because I think it's up to the reader to answer that question. And each person has a different perspective. The one thing I will say is um, there's a moment in the court case at the end when the judge is sentencing Ross. And the judge says, you know, that there is good in you, Ross Ulbricht, and there is bad in you. Uh, and, uh, And the things that you did on this website are really bad. And I think that that is the case for everyone. I think that there is good in all of us and there is bad in all of us, going back to the tech CEOs and so on. And I think that what Ross wanted to do was disrupt society in the same way that Travis Kalanick wanted to disrupt the taxi business and that, that Mark Zuckerberg wanted to disrupt the way we communicate and that Jack Dorsey wants to disrupt the way people share information and news and so on and so forth. And I think that there is good in all of them and there is bad in all of them in the decisions that they make. And I think that what the, the thing is that is that that is so fascinating about technology is that it breaks things and it breaks them quickly. Uh, and it, which going back to that, that, there is good in you and there's bad in you. Society has come up with norms that are not perfect in any way, but that push people to be the good version of themselves. And I think that technology can sometimes break so quickly that the bad takes control. And I think for Ross, running the Silk Road, that was what happened to him. Uh, so that's to answer that question. Um, as far as like the high fives, there are moments where you're just like, you, you're like, I can't make this. I couldn't have made this up if I tried. And one, one example, and this is a moment where Ross actually becomes bad, in my opinion, as, or makes a bad decision at least, as the murder is happening, um, uh, the... 
Ross is the sale. Everything on the site is going great. And Ross used to go. He would go away. He, he, you know, and he would go to Australia and other places um, to work on the site. And he would, you know, um, he every time he went away, there was something terrible that happened. There were hackers that took the site down. There was Bitcoin that was stolen. There were, you know, all these things that went wrong. And um, uh, employees wouldn't show up to work. I mean, he literally like you had a schedule. You showed up. You did your job. And he went away one weekend for a um, camping trip with this girl that he started dating and uh, another couple. And it's the same weekend that this kid, Preston Bridges, who I mentioned earlier, um, it's his prom in Australia, and he um, overdoses and dies. And Ross comes back from the camping trip, and, um, and he says to his employees, how was everything this weekend? And they were like, it was great. Nothing went wrong great sales, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that was a moment I remember when I re when I put the timestamps together of Preston dying and the weekend he goes camping and you juxtapose those things. That's a moment where I was, that was a really profound moment because um, Ross is oblivious to what the site is doing to society. In his mind, the site stayed up, everything's great, sales are up, everything's great. And halfway across the world, a 14-year-old kid uh, died. Uh, this is for, even for those of you who who know this story. This is why you should read the book. There's a the, the, uh, Nick does this amazing job of almost like kind of jump cutting back and forth between the the camping story and the 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 um, uh, the circumstances of this young man's death in a way that's that's it, that's it's very moving. Yeah, it's. I, I have to say. I mean, I remember writing that 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 chapter on an airplane, and I remember actually crying at the end. Because it was so sad, and like I interviewed Preston's parents, and um, and his mom, you know, his dad said, you know, my son, uh, he went off to his prom because I remember, you know, ragging on him because he'd been at the beach all day, and and uh, he had like a, a a tan, and I was like, you know, be careful what you do to your body, and he was saying, and Preston said something about how beautiful his body was, just you know, being a teenager, and and his mom came over, and his parents. I think we're split up at the time and she kissed him on the cheek and there's a photo that they took and um and she said you know I didn't know that that was the last time I was ever going to see my kid and for me that was a, that was a moment when my viewpoint of the site changed um because uh I remember saying to my researcher you know at one point <clears throat> um that that at first I didn't think oh Selling weed and mushrooms, what, no big deal. But uh, but you realize that there are rules in society in place for a reason. Uh, you know, kids should not be able to buy alcohol at 12 years old. They should, you know, we should not be able to drive 190 miles an hour down a side street. You know, think, there's all these things. Um, you should do background checks on people who drive a taxi for a living to make sure they're not going to try to rape. You know, it's like... There are all these things that, that, that exist in society that technology tends to break too quickly and, and, and then we are forced to put the pieces back together. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I just watched the trailer for HBO's newest drama series, Succession, and I cannot wait to watch the first episode. It looks incredible, astounding, edge-of-your-seat drama. It's directed by Adam McKay, who's one of the greatest directors out there today. He's the guy who did The Big Short and In the Loop writer Jesse Armstrong. 
It tells the story of the Roy family, owners of one of the biggest media companies in the world. So when the family patriarch, Logan, decides he's not quite ready to retire, his adult children have to fight to figure out where they fit in in the world he's created. It's set in the boardrooms and penthouses and apartments of New York City. There's power and glamour and glitz and infighting. It truly, truly looks incredible. Um, it explores power, politics, money, and of course, family in the cutthroat world of corporate America. So Succession airs on Sunday night, 10 p.m., only on HBO. Once again, it looks amazing. I cannot wait for the first episode this weekend. I will be there, glued to my television, ready to watch more. One of the tricks in all of this is that the way that we navigate the world with some integrity is oftentimes through empathy. Yep. Um, and um, actually, yesterday, I, I had the chance to go and spend part of the day at um, Lancaster Penitentiary and meet some of the men that are serving life sentences there. And I got to talking to a guy who was 58 years old and um, had... Uh, was it the Defy thing that you did? It wasn't Defy. Okay. It was another another Got organization it. called um, um, Anti Recidivism Coalition, um, uh, and so I'm talking to this guy, and he's describing, you know, how he he committed a murder when he was in a, when he was a teenager, and he had been in prison for you know 35 years or something, and that for the first 30 of those years, he he self described as like he said I was an animal. He's like I you know I was here. Uh, knowing that I would die here and um, wanted to stay at the top of the heap and staying at the top of the heap means being endlessly violent in prison. And and then he had this moment uh, three years before um, I met him where that all turned around and he decided to, to, to focus on, on trying to, to make a positive contribution to the world. And, and I asked him, like, what was the... Um, like what, what was the catalyst for that? And, and he said that it was, um, uh, they have like a victims and survivors, uh, like group therapy that he was going to. And it was the first time that he considered the impact of this, this murder. He was like, he was a drug dealer. Like who cares about a drug dealer? And it was the first time that, you know, he really thought about the fact that that drug dealer had a mother and a daughter and a whole ecosystem of of people around them that became his victims as well. And it was that moment of kind of empathy about what he had really done mm. that unlocked this um, transformation in his life. And I think, um, I think one of the things that's tricky about these technology platforms is that when you build something and it's small, um, it's relatively straightforward to have like to, a somewhat empathic view about the, the people that, that make use of the platform, but as they grow and your audience becomes, you know, hugely diverse, you've got, you know, hundreds of millions of people, young and old in every culture all over the planet. It's very difficult to, uh, understand with empathy what the, uh, what the platform does, you know, to, to, to each of these constituencies in any kind of intuitive way. There are ways that you can do it by, you know, making it really uh, uh, a core part of your everyday work is to seek that empathy. But I think some of the ways that people in technology companies lose their way is they 
they either stay focused on this original constituency they understood when they built the initial service and they just like relentlessly think about how it positively impacts that group's life and they don't think about the broader community. Um, and I think uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of that in Ross's story, right? He's so wed to his libertarian ideals that he didn't stop to think about what the real consequences were you know, on the edges. And I think that that is, you're completely right. I mean, <clears throat> that is the, uh, the moment for him, I think is in the, in the courtroom when Preston Bridges and look, there were Preston Bridges was not the only kid that died on the website. Um, but as a result of the website, but, um, uh, his parents show up and tell the story. And, uh, Ross, Ross says, you know, I never meant for any of this to happen. And, you know, he, he hasn't necessarily ever apologized. I mean, maybe he did in the court, in the in the you know roundabout way, in the closing statements and so on. But but since then, is you know he's he's still in a, still trying to get a retrial and and um, appealing to the Supreme Court right now. But but there, I think that, that was the first moment that he had that moment that you just mentioned with the the guy who says, "Oh, there were people that were affected by this," um, and I think that. I guess, you know, it's interesting. I actually have a question for you in this regard. It, do you think that it is possible? I, I, I'll tell you a little side story. So when I was um, working on the book, um, there were a, a lot of reporters in and out and um, of the of the tr trial. And there was a couple of people that I ended up hanging out with for a few days Um and I don't even remember their names, so I can't even, but they'll remain nameless anyway. And I remember getting lunch with them and getting coffees on the breaks and sitting next to each other and like commenting on certain things that the judges, the judges said or the lawyers or whatever. And, um, and I come back to California after all of this and go to friend them on, um, on Twitter, I follow them on Twitter. And one of them has blocked me and I'm like, that's weird. I wonder what that's all about. And uh, and so I log in, I grab my wife's phone and I look and she's not blocked. And so I search my name on that person's Twitter account. And there's a tweet from like four or five months earlier. Nick Bilton's a fucking piece of shit, asshole. Like he's the worst reporter on earth, blah, 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 blah. And I thought to myself, like this person I just sat with and had lunch with and coffee with and shared this moment with uh, either forgot that they wrote that or clearly doesn't like me but in person was the nicest person in the world and I never said anything and I don't give a shit like it's like whatever but what was so fascinating was the juxtaposition of that experience and the Ross story and I kept wondering and it was very clear that no matter what the the reason was that they wrote that and how they really felt about me in person they would not say it uh, because you understand that that would hurt someone's feelings um, and there's empathy, as you said. And I guess, the, so the question I have is, and I, this is something I think about all the time and I thought about since the Twitter book um, and the last 15 years covering tech and so on, do you think it will ever be possible to build technologies that have empathy beyond just mass technologies like social media um, that will have empathy? It is interesting that like, you know, um, the... There are these positive aspects about anonymity online, and it gives voice to, to people who might otherwise, you know, be, you know, at the wrong end of government oppression and so forth. But 
there's the, the, the much darker side of like what people become when they feel like they can spew hatred, um, uh, without consequence. And, um, and then there's like kind of the variability in between, I think up to and including, um, you know, tweeting something that you would never say to someone, you know, in person. Um, and I, I mean, I think this is like, I think this is the dilemma really for a, a tool like Twitter is that, um, on the one side you have, you know, people who are saying, um, you know, inside Twitter as they debate these things. And I have no doubt that they debate them. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe it's, maybe the problem with Twitter in, in part is that it's just endless debate and, and no conclusion. Um, but, but there is this debate about, you know, we want to provide the mask of anonymity to people who would otherwise be oppressed. Um, and at the same time, we've created a tool for, for people to use for all kinds of hateful speech. And, um, uh, I think what Twitter struggles with and what, um, the whole social media domain struggles with is like, how do you solve that equation? Yeah. Um, so there's a part in the book where, where VJ invokes Steve Jobs and compares him to, to Ross or, or at least aspirationally says, you know, who do you want to be? Uh, you've personally spent time with a ton of, uh, uh, technology CEOs over the course of the last 15 years. Um, who most reminds you of Ross? Travis Kalanick. Interesting. CEO, former CEO of Uber. I think Travis does. Um, there's a little bit of uh, Jack Dorsey in there. Um, so with Travis, I think that, um, you know, you can ask a lot of people, is Travis Kalanick a good guy or a bad guy? Uh, was he a good guy when he started Uber and made some really bad decisions? Or was he a bad guy and just, got caught. Um, and, um, and I think that, uh, the kinds of decisions that he made to grow the company as quickly as he could, which was the same kinds of decision that Ross made, uh, led to bad things happening to both the employees and to the people on the service and that use Uber and so on and to society. And I think that you could have incredibly easily like you could write that movie script where, you know, the two dads switch or whatever it is. Uh, and you could have you could have switched Travis and Ross at some point before they started their companies, and they would have been the exact same outcome, in my personal opinion. Uh, I think the other aspect of it is one, you know, going back to the Steve Jobs thing. I think that one of the things that has happened as a result of technology, um, and especially meeting all these people, is that they are so obsessed. All these CEOs are obsessed with legacy, and we all kind of. We all want to have an impact. We all want to do something positive in society, especially people in technology, and that's why they work in that industry. But Steve Jobs, you know, famously said, "I want to put a dent in the universe." Um, he wanted to be remembered. You know, there was a reason he called up Walter Isaacson when he was dying and said, "I want a book about me done." He wanted to be remembered, and that was almost more important than than the things that were happening on a day to day basis. And I think that 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 has been a, um, there have been a lot of things that Jobs has done that have been, that have contributed greatness to society and, and Silicon Valley and have, you know, there have been a lot of bad things and like, especially like a, CEOs that think that they can act like assholes because they think that's the way that Jobs ran his company. But I think the worst thing that Jobs left us 
was this obsession with wanting to be remembered, with wanting your Wikipedia page to be, as, you know, the longest one or to have the most amount of money so you're the, the richest person or whatever. Um, and I, you see that with someone like Jack Dorsey, who I think is a good guy at heart um, and has made some decisions with Twitter that I think a lot of people don't agree with uh, um, around Trump and so on and uh, and has a kind of a history of of you know, some of the things he did in the past that weren't really fair to his co-founders and so on. And I think that for him, it wasn't what overrode everything was legacy and still does. And, um, uh, and I, so Ross had that too. Uh, he wanted to be remembered. There's a, there's a line in, and it's not just Jack. It's, I mean, Zuckerberg wants to be emperor. They all have their thing. Um, uh, let's not even, we won't even go near Elon Musk. Uh, um, but, that Ross had this thing. There was a moment where he was talking to the D agent, not knowing he was the D agent, and the, the the guy says, "You know, when are you gonna? Do you think you'll ever come out from behind the mask and the Dread Pirate Roberts?" And Ross says, "Yeah, when when I when I've proved to society that legalizing drugs makes it safer." And the guy says, "Well, what do you mean? Like how?" And he says, "You know, when all when the majority of people in the world buy drugs from the Silk Road," and he's like, "What?" He's he's thinking to himself, and he says, "Like." You're not doing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in drug deals every year. You're not going to like you're not going to be bigger 10 times bigger than Amazon and even if you were 10 times bigger than Amazon you still wouldn't be doing all the drug deals in the world. And I think that there was but Ross said, you know, when that happens, I'll be able to come out from behind the crowd and take off my mask and um, you know, like his mom will hug him and say you saved the world and I think that he truly believed that that was what was going to happen. Well, it didn't quite end that way for Ross. It did not quite end that but, way for Ross. But uh, if he wanted to be remembered, he was lucky to uh, have found you as his. Uh, there's a there's a one line in the, the <laughs> in his chat logs that I I always that I actually put in the book where he said he said something along the lines of um, he's talking to VJ about like what the outcomes are and he you know he's writing a diary he starts a diary that's right there was a diary that he wrote and in the diary he decides i've decided to write a diary because i'm sure that at some point there will be a written story about my life there you go and here it is he was there to help <laughs> um so everybody should go out and get a copy of american king pen it's uh it's amazing before we finish i do have i can't uh i can't help but but to talk for a moment about your last book um so you wrote the book on twitter yeah um and I think as you and I have discussed, um, we find ourselves using it, using Twitter that is, less and less. And I wonder a little bit about how you feel about the story you told. Do you think that the the really interesting part of the Twitter narrative ends at the conclusion of hatching Twitter? Um, or have the things that have happened in the years that have passed sort of fundamentally rewritten the whole narrative? I mean, I think for my part, it all seems a bit darker now you know it's interesting I, I so one of the things i've complained about a lot in columns i've written is that the people that run these tech companies and that start them don't think about the unintended consequences and don't make any effort to do that and i think when it comes to writing hatching twitter i'm guilty of the same thing um i was really obsessed with there was a story out there about jack dorsey you know coming up with this idea when he was seven years old in his bedroom and realizing it years later and Evan Williams, the co-founder trying to take it from under him and, and so on. And the story was complete bullshit. You know, Twitter was realized as the book says by a, several in, people involved and Noah glass and so on. And, um, 
and the 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 point of the the book was to try to set that record straight with the hope that uh it would kind of have an impact in the future of the company and that you know that the people who deserve credit got credit what i never ever did the last chapter of the twitter book uh is all about the book the twitter book is essentially about loneliness um and about how this technology was created for people to feel less alone, which is what Noah Glass said when, he, when they first came up with the idea. Um, and at the very end of the book, there's a moment uh, where there's an astronaut in space who's using Twitter, and he's doing a Q&A with people through Twitter on, on, on Earth, and someone says, do you ever get lonely up in space? And the astronaut says, no. He said, there's times I feel alone, but I don't get lonely. He says, loneliness is a state of mind. Uh, there are people walking around on the earth below us right now in massive cities that are lonely, uh, but but I don't feel that way. I you know sometimes feel alone and that's it. And and the technology doesn't fix that problem. And that's what the whole story is about. And I think that if I were to rewrite that book today, I would have found a story that showed, and there was definitely one out there because there always is th- that showed how the technology could have been used for purposes that were unintended. Uh, and I would have tried to point out that that's something that we should be aware of as Twitter grows. Um, uh, and I, so I regret not doing that. Um, and, uh, and I wonder, you know, I wonder if the people who built it feel the same way. But for me, I go on the website now, and I, there was a time, like, I was obsessed. I mean, I was the New York Times, I remember getting into a public, I almost like lost my job because I, I, the, the publish the editor-in-chief wrote a piece about how, or publicly said something about how Twitter was bad for society. And I wrote this long piece about, and published it on the, at the Times about how he was wrong. And he was, and my editor was like, holy shit, I don't know if we should have done that. Uh, and he was great. He was like, totally valid points. Uh, I remember getting into a, 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 a blogging debate with George Packer, an incredible writer, really smart guy from The New Yorker when he was talking about how bad it is. And, and, um, and now I look at it and I go on and, I, and it's, not, it's not discussion. It's yelling. It's not a conversation. It's, it's just it's majority anger and people upset. And there's... there's there's so rarely a moment where I feel like it is making society better. And I get this knot in my stomach when I see the things that people on the left and the right are tweeting because they want attention. And, um, and it just, I just, if I, if the, I sometimes have this fantasy as I'm walking my dog about the, the, the scene at the end of, um, fight club where the, where they blow up all the credit union buildings of someone doing that with all the server buildings that house the service to run this thing because I don't I do not believe look I think that there are a million great things that have come out of of Twitter um uh at the present moment in time I don't think that that there are many great things coming out of it and I and I wonder if if they could if they would put the effort forth to try to fix it but I don't I don't know what do you think uh as someone well, who, I've taken a break from all of it recently. Yeah, so as and, someone uh, who, who, who... And uh, I have to say that I do feel in a way like I can breathe again um, uh, in a way that was, was harder when I had my you know, head in Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook every day. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, shutting the servers off at least for a minute and giving us all a chance to 
to breathe and really talk uh, might not be an entirely bad thing. Could you, I mean, could, I, I've got to say, if Jack Dorsey wants some legacy, like he could say, you know what, guys, I'm not sure this is working out <laughs> My for bad. the best. My bad. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to turn this off for a couple of minutes while we have a conversation over here. Just You guys just go outside, get some air. Everything's going to be fine. He would be remembered as the biggest hero democracy has ever seen. Uh, um, alas, that is not going to happen. It would be a great opportunity for you to publish another edition of the book, though. Yeah, I, I, it, I when you say that, it gives me anxiety. Honestly, <laughs> it's like going near that story again. It's, it's like, it's like, you know, talking about my divorce. It's, like, you know, what I'm saying. It's like, a, it's like, a, don't go there, don't go there. Um, so, but we'll see. I mean, we will see. I was. It's interesting. I was in Washington D.C. this week, walking around. I was, you know, you went to the Capitol and and. Um, and you walk through those halls and you look at those buildings and you think to yourself, can this, can these institutions, can these massive, massive buildings made of marble and brick that have been around for so many hundreds of years, can they survive Twitter and technology? And we, time will tell. We'll see. We'll see. Thank you so much for giving my, me my chance to, for my uh, podcast hosting Did debut. you like it? I did. In so fact, you, I'll be back next week uh, back. where my guest will be uh, Elon Musk and Travis <laughs> Kalanick. We'll be talking about the internet press and, uh, and how uh, awful they are. You know, how evil or not evil is Nick Bilton? Uh, so I, um, uh, you got to read the, the, the title of the book and the subtitle and tell them where they can get the book in paperback now. All right. We've been talking about American Kingpin, the epic hunt for the criminal mastermind behind the Silk Road. By? By Nick Bilton. And the book is available at AmericanKingpin.com or your local bookstore. And, and you should, if, you, if you like audiobooks, you should listen to the audiobook because the guy who reads it is amazing. It make, he makes it sound like a murder mystery thriller. He does a really great job. So What fun. There you cool. go. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a blast. All right, Tom, do it. Thanks to my guest, Nick Bilton, and of course, to me, Tom Conrad. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate this. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton and occasionally Tom Conrad. <laughs> you can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Can you make sure they leave a review? Because people forget to leave reviews. For God's sakes, people, leave a review. It's not that hard. Not for this one. No. But, you know, for... for <laughs> For future episodes, leave a review. I'm pretty sensitive. I don't really want to know what you think of this. Thanks also to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and to my sponsors, Mattress Firm and HBO. I will see you next week.